Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, trees and non-binaries, to another exciting episode of the Fantastic Universes podcast. We here do our very much our best to look at everything that excites us and interests us across the world of fandom. With our particular interests and favourites here and there, we keep coming back to some things, so with the exciting thoughts of geekdom and geek culture tearing up our airwaves and the well-being of some of our favourite games, we wanted to take a step back, the creator and I, and return to where our content creator work sort of began, really, and that is, of course, with the Caped Crusader Batman, the latest release from DC Animation, Long Halloween Part 1, has just been fully digested in its uh, feature-length form and has truly blown me away as someone who remembers the title very well, but a very long time since I've read it, I've gone into it with familiarity, but a lot of surprises, but I've been thoroughly entertained and blown away by the scope and the majesty of it, and I can't think of anybody better to talk about it with me than the co-pilot, the editor-in-chief for Dark Knight News, and a world... I would personally like to give him the honour of world-class Batman expert, my father, Stephen Ray. Thank you. That's high praise indeed. I honestly think you could be certified in it. I know there are some people out there who have degrees in Batman, which is something you can do online. I'll let you have a look at that later. But honestly, I think your knowledge has to be quite high. Well, there are definitely certain people out there who know me that think I should be certified. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, but all joking aside, um, I love what you just said of the... We both know this story intimately. It's a favourite to two of us, but it's been long enough that we can come into this film with enough familiarity, but enough distance Mm. to really appreciate the changes and the scope of this. Honestly, this film is beautiful. It really is. They've put a lot of effort into their animation style to be very different from what I'm used to from... Uh, Warner Brothers Asset Animation. Of course, we're coming fresh from our usual show, yes. I Am The Night, where we look at the original 1990s Batman and the Animated Series, which is still a classic, of course, but there's a lot of difference in the animation style to it. So when you see something this stark and this different, we're just sort of taking it yeah. back a little bit. Once again, this isn't directed like a piece of animation. This is a cinematic. This actually deserved a theatrical release as far as I'm concerned. It's that that gorgeous. I think in another world when in another time when the world wasn't closed due to the back streets being back all right, mm-hmm. we very well might have um the killing joke got a theatrical release to distinctly high and mixed reviews. But <laughs> yeah, I feel like this could have and probably would have got that big deserve and fanfare and honestly it deserves it. It's very ambitious and it's very beautiful to look at as well as faithfully reimagining the story, I would say. That's what I like. Usually, you know what I'm like. I'm a little bit... Well, the correct word is anal about some of these stories. They should not be touched. They should not be changed. They should not be manipulated. But um, writer Tim Sheridan has done some really clever stuff here because this came out in the 90s, the original story. And some of it has dated, some of it wouldn't hit as true today as it did back when it did. And in a book, it's different because you can have the nostalgia, the smell of the comics page take you back to when it was made. But a film has to be more now. And subtle changes like changing the Irish mob to the triads, A, it's very modern. B, it's inspired. Plus the fact we get that extra added scene, which is rather than just a chase scene as it is in the original comic, a full-on fight scene showing... Batman still as a rookie, 
And of course, realistically, and I love this, if he really had to face with three triad martial arts masters, he would struggle. Yeah, he would. And I think that fight scene, honestly, it's amongst the best I've seen, even in live action. In live action, I feel like when you see Batman sort of cinematically taking out uh, opposition, three scenes come to mind. This now is up there. Um, Batman in the Warehouse from Batman vs. Superman. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And just that simple 15 seconds in the Dark Knight where the police helicopter rises, but he spent the entire fight tying up those SWAT guys. Mm -hmm. So he just kicks one guy and they all just fall down like dominoes. Yeah. I honestly think that is a really good, like, Batman maneuver that I feel like is just so indicative of his martial prowess and his skills that it's good to see that something in animation can still measure up to that, even though it wasn't in the original story. Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It was literally just a fight fight scene, uh, a chase scene in, in the original comic. But little touches like that, I actually appreciate. But the spirit, the story, the plot is identical. And where things like The Killing Joke let me down by putting in a half an hour Barbara Gordon story, which was completely unnecessary. I mean, yes, they needed to let people know who Barbara Gordon is. But if you don't know who Barbara Gordon is, why are you, are you watching uh, The Killing Joke? And... Don't even get me started about Hush. Hush was written by Jeff Loeb, who wrote The Long Halloween. And changing that film and making the Riddler Hush totally negates one of the greatest new additions of Batman Rogues Gallery in the real Hush, Tommy Elliot. I'm really glad I haven't seen that adaptation oh, now. Oh, God. Um, don't. Um, huge disappointment. You've got so much right, but well, anyway, I don't want to talk about this. I want to talk about something that has got it right, and I want to talk about Long Halloween Part 1. So certainly, yes. Let's talk about it. Let's talk yeah. about how well they... We'll sort of break it down sort of as the runtime sort of goes along. I know that you deeply appreciated them for the opening credits using actually <sighs> clips from Tim Sale's artwork. I mean, you know how I feel about Tim Sale. Tim Sale's got that very unique yeah. sort of look. He makes it. He sort of. I feel like just when I think of Tim Sale's artwork, all I can think of is the Joker. Just that enormous, yes. unearthly, cartoonish sort of look. So I feel like the way I would personally describe that art style is a sinister Quentin Blake. Yeah, it, it's like um, surreal, but just real enough to mess with your head. Very much so. And that's something that they really showed a lot of respect to in the opening of this episode. It was beautiful. Um, Because not only is Tinsale a consumer artist, he drew The Long Halloween and its sequel, Dark Victory, and three Halloween specials, and Blades, and a few other Batman books, which I adore. And he's not just an amazing artist. Having met and interviewed the guy, he's just one of the nicest people I've ever met, too. So the fact that he's tributed by adapting one of his greatest stories and having his artwork feature in the opening credits, I just thought it was it was stunning. Absolutely brilliantly done. Really was. And it got little moments to sort of indicate where the plot was going to go to. And it cut, held back to that respect to the original story, which from what it sounds like, uh, recent adaptations like Hush and Killing Joke have sort of lost in a way. There's, yeah. there's intentional respect and reverence there to the story that inspired this adaptation. I had high hopes because I'm reading um, religiously Tim Sheridan's work in the recently relaunched Teen Titans book, which is now called Teen Titans Academy, which has got the classic Titans lineup of Starfire, Cyborg, Beast Boy, Nightwing, training the next generation of Titans in like a school environment. And the amount of nods and tributes that Sheridan's putting in to 
Dick Grayson's backstory, Teen Titans' backstory, love of Marv Wolfman and George Perez. I had high hopes coming into this film that he'd do the same with the source material. And yes, he's put his own little twists on it, but I appreciate all of them. But more than anything, he's showing real love and understanding to the long Halloween. Yeah, so let's talk about the actual like main plot overall. We get covered the first third, I'd say, the first four, maybe five killings by the holiday killer, sort of. Yes. Um, exactly that. Because we need the initial setup of who the big three are, because that image of um, Jim Gordon, Batman, and Harvey Dent on a rooftop is something that has been done way before Christopher Nolan ever did it. And mm-hmm. those three figures are still, to me, the great pillars of justice in Gotham City. And with them together, they really could have made a real difference, which is why it's such a tragedy that what happened to Harvey, what happened. But that's for part two to come forth in a month or so. But those that setup of those three characters, we get them as it was put down Mm -hmm. in Long Halloween, but also, as we know, that's still a very sincere adaptation from like bringing together lots of different myths of those characters overall. So those three sort of... In aggregate, how well did you think they handled the opening? Perfect. Yeah? Absolutely perfect. For me, as you know, that even though there were stories that happened between Frank Miller and David Massatelli's legendary Batman Year One and The Long Halloween, stuff like Shaman, stuff like Gothic and, and Venom, for me, anyone who wants to get into Batman, I hand them over what I call the Batman The Early Years trilogy of Batman Year One, mm-hmm. Batman The Long Halloween, and mm-hmm. Batman Dark Victory, because they just work... And they've taken all of that literally almost off the page Mm. and made it move, made it breathe, made it speak by a brilliant direction and great casting as well. The casting is something I want to talk about in great deal, particularly for one of my favourite characters, but uh, also it features one of my favourite actors finally getting out to live his dream of being (laughs) Batman. Yes, indeed. Yes, uh, um, co-host here on the Fantastic Universes podcast on the Wayward Rewatch section uh, is a big Jensen Ackles fan as we look very heavily at Supernatural, but sure enough, Jensen Ackles has made many jokes about being Batman across the run of Supernatural. But seeing him, and of course he was... uh, doing the Red Hood great justice in Under the Red Hood, yes. which, is a, which is also a very faithful and very good adaptation. Mm-hmm. But sure enough, Jensen Eccles himself, personally, I love that he was able to do the difference between Bruce Wayne and Batman. There's a softness yeah. to it. Yeah. But I know that there was some seriousness and some youth to Batman in his in his mm-hmm. uh, overall origin here. He, he's still a fresh new Batman. But his Batman voice is still just Dean Winchester. And I'm like... It's, <laughs> It's, it is. It, oh my god! It, it is, really is. It is still Gene Winchester, and like I love both characters for very different reasons. <laughs> they're both great. they're both great heroes that I deeply respect, but do things very differently, obviously. But there's something about that grovel that just like sort of really calls back to that character for me. So I'm just like, okay, it's Batman. It's a fresh young Batman. Just yes. get in that mindset. It's not exactly. He's not going to open up the back of the Batmobile and find the salt loaded shotguns. He's not going to do it. He yeah. could do it, but he's not going to do it. And let's get even more meta, mm. because who played Dean Winchester's father? Oh, yeah. Jeffrey Dean Morgan. Who was <laughs> Thomas uh, Wayne. Wayne for about 30 seconds of Batman Superman. Exactly. And who I pray to Lord God he will be again as the Flashpoint Batman, though years are passing very quickly, but still we can dream. Like you said, yeah, Jensen is clearly a Batman nerd, and he is so clever. Is that right? In recent years, he's been cosplaying as Red Hood and Batman, and we've even reported about it on, on our sister site, Dark Knight News. 
And in the last time he did it, he said, Happy Halloween. He was already recording <laughs> the film when he did that. And obviously we know that because of the passing, the tragic passing of, of the amazingly talented Naya Rivera, who played um, Catwoman in this film and the next one. But um, she managed to finish because they had recorded a lot of this quite a while back. And in respect to her family and their wishes, they sat on it for a while let the wounds heal slightly if ever a wound like that could ever heal and this is her last recorded work and again perfect catwoman i would say so she's got the right sort of measured layered intelligence mm-hmm. touches of vulnerability with just the sincerity and the mastery of who she is and what she's doing of course um it's all set with the undertones of her trying to figure out her connection to the falconi family which is then covered in another story that's yes, done by stories, yeah. done by the same creative team, the title of which escapes me. But we get that layered and rich performance that the character deserves because they get we get a rich and layered portrayal in the original story. Well done, yeah, absolutely. It's covered again, obviously, in the rest of this story in Dark Victory and in the Catwoman standalone by Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale, Catwoman When in Rome, where she truly discovers her link to the Falcone family, and. Um, it's just so well done. I love what you said about her just the right mix of strength and vulnerability, but I also want to add that she's probably the only person who could rival Alfred Pennyworth in her sarcasm and bitchiness towards Bruce, but with love. You feel it's done with love? Well, it's done with love, certainly, yeah, but there's also that level of uh, sassiness and bitchiness towards each other because uh, it's quite a bit of... Uh, repartee there for Alfred to be willing to just sort of bat her hand away from the turkey. <laughs> Fantastic. Oh, that was a great scene. I don't actually remember that from the book, but again, you've seen me. We finished the film. You went up to set up the recording and I pulled out my long Halloween issues. So yes, that's just what I'm like. And yes, I will be reading it again before part two comes out. Yeah, uh, it was a pleasant surprise just to see you there curled up with your long boxes out. Um <laughs> Just the that issues, never happens. The, the issues in your hands. No, the, <laughs> the long boxes never come out. That's true. There's there's like a maze in the in the uh, attic. It's there's a monitor in there just running around trying to hunt Greek heroes. Honestly, the collection is immense. But then again, what would you expect? Um, but still, the respect and care given back to these key characters yeah. done in the original story has been mirrored here so masterfully. Uh, it's masterful, but also, again, loving. The director, Chris Palmer, again, I had high hopes. This is a very talented animation director. He's done stuff as varied as Voltron, Legend of Korra, um, episodes of Justice League Action. He's the one who did the first of this new redesigned DC Animated Universe with the Superman Man of Tomorrow movie recently, which again was superb. So great choice of director. And again, you can see that he's treating it like a live action movie. And rather than just have the blacks and the greys that we more or less come to expect from a Batman animation... What I've loved about this film is scenes like when vehicles are crossing the bridge, you see bright greens and reds and oranges and neons that rival um, Joel Schumacher's wildest nightmares <laughs> from Batman Forever and uh, Batman and Robin. But he's made them work to highlight 
the surrealism of this whole situation. That again, that fight scene, that whole bit in Chinatown, the yes. colours are really wanted to talk. stunning. Yes, if you're going to talk about colouring and colour scheming, I have to talk about that scene in Chinatown because it's no longer an Irish mob; it's the Triads. Yes. So running through Chinatown, you're never going to get a bland, absolutely goth, uh, Gotham concrete grey Chinatown. Chinatown's always prosperous red because red's a lucky colour in Chinese culture. And you get the neons, the lanterns, yeah. and it makes the whole scene really come alive, which is just a huge visual punch that completely contrasts yeah. everything that was in the original story. So yeah, that and that visual sort of like mismatching just makes the place feel more real. Uh, totally. Even though it's highly surreal, it, it adds that layer of texture and depth to the film that is one of the things that have really blown me away. I was expecting this to be good. But honestly, and this is the highest praise imaginable that I can give to a Batman animation. And I said it to you and you looked at me and said, wow, Batman Mask of the Phantasm now finally has a true rival as to what could be the best Batman animated movie ever. And that is rightly regarded as high praise because I've heard you consider that uh, Mask of the Phantasm is the best Batman film ever yeah. over any of the live animations. Yep. We get moments of true good Batman in some of the live actions, but it all comes back down to Master of the Phantasm for giving a layered psychological mm -hmm. reading of Batman. I would say this one's also very good at that because it also shows a younger Batman yes. as fairly fresh but still mm -hmm. very competent, which is a very hard thing to sort of pull off. Yeah, I mean, they make him vulnerable. He takes a beating. He's still not the world's greatest detective. He's on the first steps towards that path. But they don't take away from any of his mystique, any of his awesomeness, any of his ability. They're showing that these are the steps that led to the hero, the great defender, the great protector that we know and love decades later. Yeah, and this is a real excellent vision of this Batman that we really got well in that story, which is why you recommend it so highly as an introduction for Batman reading. But it's also so important that it's been done so faithfully when put onto screen. Now, we can talk about how well Batman's mm. been characterised here, and that's okay, but I've always credited this story as being a good portrait for multiple characters. Oh, yeah. Like, I like I keep going back to that visual of the three pillars of justice mm -hmm. in Gotham there mm -hmm. up on the rooftop. That's as much, this story, The Long Halloween, is as much a story about the other two gentlemen oh, God, yeah. as it is about Batman. So let's talk about the good commissioner, uh, James Gordon, and how well we see him as the tortured family man having to deal with the responsibility of his job into the steadfast defender and protector and keeping his family safe as best he can. So good. Billy Burke does a great job as Commissioner Gordon in this episode. In this episode, I was so used to doing um, Iron Man. I've said I've said a couple of times it's yeah. all good. Well, it is an episode, I guess. It's the first of a two-parter. Yep, a very, <laughs> a very long two-season run of a very well, a very high-budget series. Sure, absolutely. He's great as Gordon because again, he's torn between being a family man and being a father and a husband and being a newly appointed captain of the GCPD. And like you said, the relationship was forged in Batman Year One, not just between him and Batman, but also between the tragic character of Harvey Dent. And we know what's gonna happen to him, but we'll talk about that when part two comes out. First, there was the DC Comics News Podcast. 
Then came the Spinner Rack. And now, the third show brought to you by the guys that brought you all that other stuff I just mentioned. I am the Knight. A story about the stories. A show celebrating Batman, the animated series. Week by week, episode by episode. Just when you thought it was safe to put on a pair of headphones. I am the Knight. Why, hello there. I'm Seth Singleton, and I'm here to tell you about Mad Pup, a Harley Quinn cast. Harley Quinn? Harley fucking Quinn? What have we learned from this crazy show? Making bat shark repellent relevant since 1966. Oh, look, Ogre. And we've gone completely off the rails. I hear the bat signal. Shut up the bat, I'm nuts. I definitely do not fuck bats. In need of an adult-sized nemesis. Humans make good fertilizer. You can't fuck with Lois Lane. For fuck's sake. I'm a damn good cop. Lot of lasers. Mmm. Educational and informative. The DC Comics News Podcast Network presents Mad Love, the Harley Quinn cast. <laughs> Back to you, Seth. So, tell us your thoughts. We'd love to hear from everyone out there. Or not. That's really up to all of you. Fuckers. Picture this. Someone who knows nothing about comics. Someone who knows comics from movies, TV, and video games. A complete ultra comics nerd. You pick the character you want us to talk about. You send us the questions you want answered. You make the show. A podcast by fans. For fans. Making new fans. Superheroes. Or dummies. Part of the Comics in Motion Podcast Network. All work and no play makes for a dull way to live, don't you agree? Join me, Adam Ray, and a very special guest each week on the Hostile Takeover, where they and I discuss their favourite game, PC, console, board game or tabletop, whatever they decide, what we will talk about. Let gaming be the way forward. Working's too much. It's time for a Hostile Takeover, coming soon to a podcast feed near you. In a world of stereotypes, being called a geek comes with a certain image. There is still that ingrained thing within me that is a little bit embarrassed about it. In reality, geek culture has never been more mainstream, and behind every geek is a real story. My dad was the one who got me into Star Wars and things. Join me, your super dummy Paul, as I continue my learning experience and talk to the real people. I'm a secondary school teacher, so I teach 11 to 16 year olds in English. Hear their stories exclusively on Fantastic Universes. He's one of them like, you've ever gonna grow up? And I'm like, no, why should I? I, I like my life, I, I enjoy what I do, this is my hobby. Available on all your favorite podcast catchers. Hi, my name's Steve, and I'm here to tell you all about the DC Comics News Podcast. Every week, my friends and I sit down and discuss everything DC. Movies, TV and streaming, comic books, and everything in between. But don't just take my word for it. 
Here are a couple of our sponsors. Listen to the DC Comics News Podcast. It's audio justice. <laughs> no, no, no. It's audio chaos. These wackos are crazier than I am. Well, maybe you're both right. Whatever the case, you can find the DC Comics News Podcast on every podcast platform. Apple Podcasts. Google Play. Spotify. Stitcher. And everywhere else you find podcasts. So, um, can I go now? Let him go. He did everything you asked. (laughs) Hello, listeners. This is Tony Farina from DC Comics News and an occasional guest on Comics in Motion. I'm pleased to announce a new show called Indie Comics Spotlight. Each week, my guests and I will be taking a deep dive into a current title or a classic graphic novel from a publisher other than the big two. Consider this show the best of the rest. My hope is that we'll bring new readers to independent comics and give old readers a chance to share their thoughts. Join me each week in the Comics in Motion feed in your favorite podcast catcher. schism that will develop between Jim and Bruce and Harvey and who Harvey's about to become is so brilliantly handled but so delicately handled because obviously we now know that years later it's Batman and Jim they're as much a dynamic duo as Batman and Robin they're as much a world's finest team as Batman and Superman but originally they were three and this beautifully carved portrayal between the three actors Josh Duhamel as um, Harvey Dent is a revelation because all I can see him as is a soldier in the Transformers movies but the layers he's added to Harvey and already when he's angry and the direction where you're only seeing one side side of his profile mirrors the comics so Mm. well that it's like you said son those three pillars and one is going to get knocked down yeah, that's why I will continue to call this sort of story almost a great tragedy. Because it is. the overall arc of The Long Halloween is you do see it's open with Harvey Dent as this uh, bastion of justice, someone with the intention of going towards Mayor, someone with his singular vision to bring down the Falcone crime family. He's so determined, but also so steadfast. But as the events of the story unfold, you see him slip more into temptation. You see him start to yeah. argue with his wife. You see him take particularly bad decisions that eventually just fall back on him until eventually the events of part two will show, Mm -hmm. hopefully show well the uh, gruesome fate of this character. But yeah, I constantly call it as a Greek tragedy with Batman and Jim Gordon there in the back trying to be his moral compass that he keeps Mm -hmm. trying to ignore. But then again, that's a trope in Greek tragedy as it is that like the straight and narrow keeps getting ignored by the hero for the sake of greater power. Uh, absolutely absolutely and and it's even almost more tragic because out of the three of them before his transformation and his downfall he's arguably the best man of the three Mm. he's the most genuine the most honest and straight arrow but he's got that dark hidden schism within his psyche batman we know is far from faultless. He's got a dark side. His whole life is based on vengeance and justice. Jim Gordon 
has been kicked out of police departments across the country for um, disciplinary positions, for many other reasons, for not following rules, and, and for, again, not being a, a that good a husband. He's cheated on his wife. We know definitely with Sarah Essen, and it's alluded to that it's not the first time. But he, when it comes to the law, he's a fantastic cop, the best there is. But Harvey doesn't have that. You see him, and it's so brilliantly done, as the perfect husband. But as the story progresses and we learn more about the holiday killer or killers, no spoilers here, keep listening. And if you haven't read this, read it, please. Um, the, the whole way he plays it as a loving husband who clearly, it's brilliant the way they show the relationship with Gilda because that, again, is very important come part two. And what I love as well is how they've shown that Batman was actually there this time, which isn't the same as the book, at the um, death of Alberto Falcone, which is going to lead to big surprises in part two as well. But again, no spoilers. Keep watching, keep reading. It's just a masterpiece of acting and direction. I would say so. I really would. I was a big fan of this story going forward. But once mm. part two is wrapped up, as much as it pains me to admit that even though I'm a student of literature... I don't read quite as much as I would like to. I have my own sort of mm. personality traits and faults that make it hard for me to concentrate. But when part two's come and digested, and we'll cover part two on this show, don't you worry, oh, listeners. Yeah, definitely. Um, I will very happily sit down and reread the entire story again because it's worth that retelling and just to sort of see the overall writing styles and applications it is because, again, it's something I'm very sad and ashamed about that I don't read quite as much as I would like. But... I think that's kind of the point of an adaptation like this. Yes. It's meant to inspire and pique curiosity in its viewers. And the fact that it's done so so well, someone with, uh, with a fan such as myself, someone who knows the story, at least in passing, to be able to be interested to go back to it just to see the differences and to see how well it's constructed, I think it's served its job perfectly. Well, like I said, I never pull out my long boxes. No, you never play the long boxes, of course not. <laughs> Why would you? Hmm. But sure enough, this is only the first half, the first opening salvo of the story. Uh, when it comes around to part two being done, I'm certainly going to fire up Premiere and find a way to stitch together into this one three-hour masterpiece because mm -hmm. I feel like that'll be a satisfying thing to do unless the fine creators of at Warner Brothers are probably going to release an ultimate edition that'll do that for me anyway. But nevertheless, we are still expecting a part two. So what are your expectations? What does part two need to do to match up to part one? I love the way you said that this film and the sequel have inspired you to reread it. And that to me is, uh, that, that's music to my ears. I love hearing that. Because watching this and having read this story as often as I have, what I adore is the fact that Tim Sheridan has in scenes, lifted the dialogue straight out of Jeff Loeb's original, particularly the bits with the Joker and the yeah. plane and the crew and the pilot and everything else. Actually, we're going to table my first question because I want to circle back to the Joker. Because, oh, good. I'm so glad we, you said yeah. that. Yeah. Um, because the Joker is honestly one of my favourite characters in all of fiction, as mm. problematic as that may be. Um, I agree. No, no. He's, he's, a, <laughs> he's a rapist yes. and a serial killer and... <laughs> But he's fascinating. But he's fascinating. He's not boring. He's not boring. Like, there are some villains out there that are very boring. Mm -hmm. We're not going to go there. Um, there are times when I have to credit Troy Baker's performance. Oh my God, yeah. Because you close your eyes, and I know he's not trying to be Mark Hamill. But there's enough love But there's enough love and tribute there that everyone sort of agrees that Mark Hamill's the definitive performance. 
So circling back to try and fit that style is sort of implied when you're voice acting the Joker. Mm-hmm. Something I know that you did with the advert for the DC Comics News podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, you did that sort of like squeaky raspiness, but with a sort of like sing-song sort of nature, which is yes. very new and I a very nice... I bit of myself into it. It's well. a very nice take, but still, you're not a... You're not a tenured voice actor. Yeah. Troy Baker is. I, from one of Troy Baker, he's been very layered and has done work across the spectrum of voice acting. So he's blown me away to be able to like get that vision of the character, but still something new. Oh, totally. I mean, I, I've, I've met and spoken to Troy. And um, the fact that he, in his last outing as Joker, I do believe it was his last outing. Please correct me if he's done anything since. He did the Batman Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles animated movie. And he played Batman Bruce Wayne and the Joker in that one. And again, you would never know it was the same guy. But honestly, should Mark Hamill ever decide to fully retire from playing the Joker or that other thing I don't even want to think about... There are only two men in my mind who should be considered to take the role over permanently. And that's Troy Baker and Steve J. Ray. <laughs> well, um, whoever that Steve J. Ray person is, I'm very excited to meet them. I'm very interested to see their uh, further body of work. But uh, I think they're mostly writing now. So branching out into acting is a very ambitious thing for them. Best of luck, whoever they are. Diversify. 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 Well, to be honest, diversifying is quite handy. I'm very good at video editing now, even though I've got a literature degree. <laughs> Absolutely. There you go. Uh, but still, a masterful performance by a master oh, of the brilliant. craft. And the actual only sort of not really a negative downside mm. is that I really wish that they had been able to incorporate some of Tim Sale's designs into the Joker just to have... Because there's it's clearly elements to it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that the, the way that this Joker is designed and illustrated is that there is an immense chin there. So the capacity for those enormous yellow teeth is there. But we don't quite see it. Mm-hmm. I think that some of the later fights when we catch up with Joker again, we'll probably see some of those big sweeping punches from Batman where teeth are flying and yeah. bits of teeth are flying. But... I don't know, I'd have liked to have seen the great chompers of the Joker, possibly. You and I have a very similar design aesthetic appreciation, and I am the biggest Tim Sale fan on Earth, apart from possibly my friend Ryan Lauer. Hi, Ryan. Um, But his version of the Joker is what we call in this country Marmite. Some people love it, some people hate it, some people think it's too over-the-top, too garish, too cartoonish. I think that this version... Toes the line between your classic, I don't know, Neil Adams, Denny O'Neill, um, or Jim Aparo versions of the Joker and Tim Sales. He's recognizably the Joker from the comic books, still recognizably the toothy lunatic from Tim Sales along Halloween, but not quite as Picasso or Dali esque. He's still just within the borders of realism. And I know that. That must have been a tough decision for the makers of this film to make. Shall we go full Tim Sale or shall we not? I know a lot of fans who, for their own reasons, and, you know, taste is taste, art is subjective, don't like Tim Sale's Joker. So I think they balance the line quite well. Yeah, I'd say they turn the line well. And there's elements to it enough to show respect to the original designs, but they've also kept it in keeping with the aesthetic of the rest of the animation. Because if they had done that, over-the-top, chumpy Joker, it would look fairly contrasting to yes. the rest of the to the rest of the uh, production. So for that reason, I can definitely forgive it. And 
a great portrayal and a great performance is something I can easily again forgive. Absolutely. And he's done the same, or he, they, the makers of this one's done the same with Catwoman's ears from her costume. They're a lot more big, voluptuous. And I'll, I'll show you in the comic after, but you might have seen it from the titles. They made her more like halfway between the comic book Catwoman and the long Halloween Catwoman in this film, and I really appreciate that. When it comes to designing characters for your animation, it's just important to keep it consistent across the entire production across the entire art team so it's good they were able to put their own sort of spin on the designs given by the original story which is in essence what the entire uh the entire film has done which is a good way to sort of uh put your own stamp on a classic but not so much so that it becomes like a twisted distortion yes of the of the original they have been able to put their own spin on a batman classic while still maintaining the actual things that kept their Blackman classic. Yeah. They've done what I like new creators to do. They've come in and done something that's them, that's uniquely their vision, but without painting over or erasing what inspired it, but by honouring and tributing in very subtle, very, very loving ways what came before. Yep. And that's a very hard line to toe. Yeah. But then again, we've seen uh, one of the animation try to toe this line and miss the mark but i think they've done it in quite a strong way here so that brings me to the question i was going to table mm-hmm. unless you had anything you wanted to add i wanted to ask since this is a very clear part one what expectations do we have going into part two well um i was surprised i thought they'd get at least five six months so into the long into the long halloween i thought but they've only like you said done the third a third they've done issues for October, November, December, and January, Halloween, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's. So literally, they've still got well over half a year to cover in part two. But that's smart because the pacing in this was very deliberate. Yes. It was a draw you in, a slow burn with some bursts of action in the middle to keep you invested and brilliantly done. That's the, that is precisely why I think we've only seen the first third exactly. of the year's worth of mur- mur- uh, mur- uh, murders covered. Yeah. We also needed immense context going mm-hmm. into the story. For speci- um, yeah. As you'd imagine, just like anyone reading the original story, we needed to know who Harvey Dent is. We needed yes. indications to show exactly. that this is a fresh Batman and a fresh Jim Gordon. You know, And we get that by hearing Batman being tested as a detective yes. and only Captain Gordon. Mm-hmm. We needed to know who the Falcone crime family yep. was. Uh, the, the feud with Salvatore Moroni, and we got a lot of that very well addressed in the opening crawl yes. with the original shots from Tim Sale's artwork, and we got that in the initial sort of uh, context drips here and there in and around the first murder. So, yeah, there was paced deliberately so yes, that we got absolutely. all of that context in before the inciting incident, mm-hmm. but it didn't feel bogged down, nope. and it didn't feel absolutely uh, padded for the sake of padding because there was no padding. It was still yeah. very faithful adaptation, just very slight fine-tuning tweaks to turn one kind of mafia into another and just uh, lovely, uh, rewarding moments, touching back to giving uh, someone Grundy some Thanksgiving turkey. Oh, a lovely scene. Beautifully done. Um, showing, again, Batman the Protector. This is a monster, but he's treated with a bit of dignity and respect, and that's just Batman all over. But it's like you say, they deliberately... I mean, what I love about this film is the fact that you can come in never having seen or read any Batman before and know these characters. And that's why I deliberately, I love the pacing of it. They, mm. The way they've done it is, is genius. 
But for people who have read and devoured or seen Batman Year One in comic book form or in animation, this is like the next step. Here you go. Here's your reward. You've seen this one. You've read this one. Here's the next chapter. It works for new fans who are fresh and for us old diehard um, Geekipedias like us who, who, who know and love the original source material. So what I'm expecting for part two, there's some going to be some major action in part two because they're really now got eight months of stuff to cover and it's going to be a whirlwind and I cannot wait. Yep, it's going to be something very exciting, very drawing you in from the beginning because they have the benefit of not needing to provide us any context. Exactly. Because they've done that. Nobody, yeah, they've done that perfectly here. There's no real need for anyone to just go in straight from part two unless they know the story super well. So they are going to go in high speed with all of the context given so that we can just get as real and as meaty a story as we possibly can get. Brilliantly said. They've sown the seeds with with Jim and Batman walking into Arkham and walking past the cells, showing you exactly who we're going to see in part two Hmm. is, it's just genius. It's just so clever. Breadcrumbs there. I'm the chicken that's following them all the way to getting my head cut off and I cannot wait. Well, even then, if you want to talk about the fine breadcrumbs, this just came back to me. I th- the do you remember when it first started, and I said, "Oh, brilliant!" When it just saw the the DC logo, mm-hmm. it's because behind the DC logo was uh, calendar dates, yes, but specifically the calendar dates yes. of all of the murders. Well, it's just such care and devotion and yeah. attention that we're getting those clues about the story there from the beginning, and we're only halfway through. Less than halfway through, about a third of the way through. So, um, halfway through film wise, but in story terms. I can't wait. I, I do not. I never want to wish my life away, son. Yeah. But I cannot wait for part two to come out. And when they do the inevitable box set, this is one. I know I get given these things free. That's part of the joy of my job. But I am going to pay real money for physical versions of this film. It's that good. And people, if you can't get digital copies, buy this. Honestly, it's brilliant. You will not be let down. Um, it's a 10 out of 10 for me. 10 out of 10 for me as well. Uh, faithful, reimagining, but still ambitious and sincere adaptation of a classic Batman story that honestly deserves a lot more attention than I think it does. Oh, absolutely. And a great high action, but still character driven story that can really grip most audiences anywhere. Absolutely. So good indeed. But yes, that is part one of this adaptation covered and covered to high devotion and high attention. You can catch part two to your earbuds and airwaves as soon as we get our grubby little hands on it. Don't you worry about that. But until such time, there are many other shows to catch here on the Fantastic Universe's podcast network, as well as our immense writing across fandom, uh, comic book, and tabletop gaming fair. But as for the voices behind this show, where can we find your writing, sir? My writing? Just literally open up Google, type in Steve J. Ray, or of course... Fantastic Universe is to all my writing on our site, our baby, our pride and our joy, and across DC Comics news, Dark Knight news, and of course now the mighty CBR as well. To hear me on this network, the DC Comics News Podcast Network and the Comics and Motion Podcast Network, which features, of course, our friend Paul McGuigan, who's doing the wonderful show Geek for us here at Fantastic Universes. Truly ambitious stuff and a great spread of... Oh, it's brilliant. And you're involved in truly a great spread of work across comics fair and 
all the power to it. As for little me, as much as I appreciate the uh, the offerings of DC, my one true love is PC and tabletop gaming. To that end, on Fantastic Universes, you can catch me talking about games of a particular guest's favourite here on the Hostile Takeover podcast. For those who have been keeping their ears out, I have been sufficiently behind and for that I deeply apologise. I'm involved in a lot of content and planning things is hard. But nevertheless, I am still there for your written pleasure. Uh, I cover my my own uh, preferred topics on the Fantastic Universe's website proper. Uh, For Dungeons & Dragons supplements, you can find me writing about them on the Apotheosis Studios network, as well as writing about PC gaming across all of its scopes on .gg. For visual media, you can find me dungeon mastering games for no ordinary heroes on youtube and you can find my various let's plays on the hostile atmosphere on youtube and whatever universes you wish to travel through i hope they're all fantastic thank you for listening bye now Imagination outside the line, all standing, waiting. Heroes, villains, angels, Satan's. Oh my goodness gracious! Worth it to see the hotel star's faces. We made it. The date is eventually here. End of the convention. Here, three cheers! Stories, panels, stalls, stands, skits Professor Elemental's on about six Of course at every con there's a couple of dicks That's not real steam Shut up, yes it is Every other person makes it better Every volunteer all holds it together Yes! You finally found your tribe Yes! Every type all here inside We're all equal, we're all worthy I don't know why they all have a go at furries If you want to dress up as a giant rabbit And have relations with a man squirrel That is none of my business Six Batmans, parties packed, jams, eclectic, fandom, army, all connected. All the best, unique, the same. All invited, join the game. All done, all the best, then cheers. I'm all broken. See you next year. My poor aching head. God, whose hat is this? Whose trousers are these? Just want to swim around and live in a, live in a comic.